I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. He has driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Indeed, he has turned his hand against me again and again all day long. He has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. He has besieged me and surrounded me with bitterness and hardship. He has made me dwell in darkness like those long dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has barred my way with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. Like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in hiding, he dragged me from the path and mangled me and left me without help. He drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He pierced my heart with arrows from his quiver. I became the laughingstock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. He has filled me with bitter herbs and given me gall to drink. He has broken my teeth with gravel. He has trampled me in the dust. I have been deprived of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendour is gone and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new, Every morning, great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. Let's pray as we come to God's word. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Father God, we come to your word now. We pray you would quieten our hearts and our souls to hear from you as we seek you. Lord, we want to put our hope in you. We want to find your salvation. We want to know your, your good mercies, which are new every morning. So Lord, fill us with hope, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, amen. There will, I'm sure, have been moments in all of our lives when we just don't know how we will cope with what tomorrow brings. Maybe now is one of those moments for you. You've been in isolation for three months and you've just about coped. Things are relaxing. You've been able to get into your, your garden. But what if there's a second wave come the autumn? How are you possibly going to be able to cope then? Maybe you're a teacher and you're thinking, well, I've got through this this week, but what happens when all the children come back? How am I going to cope with that? Maybe you, you've been furloughed and you're just about getting by financially, but um, if this goes on for much longer, you're wondering, how, how am I and my family going to cope? If you're feeling any sense of hopelessness at the moment, then this passage is for you this morning. Because in the midst of the darkness of despair, we see that there is the light of hope. By way of recap, the first two chapters of Lamentations have been filled with grief and despair. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed by the Babylonians. Its inhabitants have either starved to death, been killed in battle, or been taken into captivity. Only a few remain. As they look over the destruction of the city, there is little cause for hope. They are weeping with grief. And God weeps with us in our grief. They are angry that God has allowed it to happen, but at the same time, they know that they deserve it because of their persistent sin and rebellion towards God. As we saw last week, God hates sin, but he's also slow to anger. He does not like to bring grief to his people. And ultimately, he turned aside his anger through the death of Jesus Christ in our place. And he offered forgiveness to all who cry out to him for mercy. As we said before, the poetry of the Book of Lamentations is important in conveying the message. Each of the first two chapters contain 22 stanzas of three clauses each. And each stanza started with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, a so-called acrostic. But as we come to chapter three, not only does each stanza start with a different letter, but each of the three clauses within each stanza start with that same letter. And the reason is to emphasize that chapter three is the pinnacle of the whole book. This is where we find hope. But we didn't get there straight away. First, the poet describes his hopeless situation. And we see that hope can be found in the midst of hopelessness. Last week we saw how in the first part of chapter 2, the poet described the anger of God and the, the destruction pain that he had caused Jerusalem. He described how the Lord had shown his anger by withdrawing his blessings from his people, the blessings of worship, of protection, and leaders who taught the truth. Well, chapter 3 starts in a, in a similar way. It's again all about what God has done in his anger, but this time it's not about the pain he has caused Jerusalem, but the personal pain that he has caused the poet through his experience of his identification with the destruction of the city. 
It's as if he's now speaking on behalf of Lady Zion. He starts with the words in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. We read of the Lord's rod and staff in Psalm 23. There they're meant to be a source of comfort because the rod is used by the shepherd to protect his sheep from wild animals. But now the rod is no longer a symbol of protection, but a means of attack against his own sheep. The Lord, as a shepherd, would be a comfort for his sheep as he leads them through the valley of the shadow of death, through that darkness. But now he lets them stumble around in the dark on their own. Verse 2 says, he's driven me away and made me walk in darkness rather than light. Rather than protect them from injury, he is the one who's caused the injuries. Verse 4, he has made my skin and my flesh grow old and has broken my bones. Instead of enjoying freedom, the poet feels trapped, enclosed, and weighed down. Verse 7, he's walled me in so that I cannot escape. He's weighed me down with chains. And it feels like God has shut his ears to his pleas for help. Verse 8, even when I call out or cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Reminds me of a nightmare I used to have. When I was young, I would find myself being chased by someone and cry out for help, but no sound came out of my mouth. I wonder if you experienced that same nightmare. The poet feels like no one can hear his cry for help. Instead of being protected by the Lord from his enemies, now he feels he's being hunted by the Lord. Verse 12, he drew his bow and made me the target for his arrows. He feels mocked and ridiculed and is constantly worried about what others are thinking. Verse 14, I became the laughing stock of all my people. They mock me in song all day long. And so by the time we get to verses 17 to 20, we are left feeling his complete despair. I've been deprived of peace, he says. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I'd hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them. And my soul is downcast within me. He's lost all hope. I wonder if at some point in your life you have felt like that. Or maybe you feel like that at the moment. Where can the poet possibly go from here? Where can I go from here, you may be thinking. Well, the poet gives us a way out of the despair. In the next line he says, Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. This is the turning point in the whole chapter, in the whole book. And it shows us that hope comes from remembering the Lord's unfailing love. There's a conscious step that the poet has to take. If he just looks at his situation and allows his emotions to take control, then there's little hope. 
But if he turns his mind to the Lord and focuses on him, then there is hope. So what exactly does the, the poet focus on? What do we need to focus on if we're feeling like we are in the same place as him? In chapter 2, the poet wrote, God has burned in Jacob like a, a flaming fire that consumes everything around it. That is what it felt like to him. But now he writes, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How did this sudden change come about in the poet? He remembered. He remembered what he'd been taught about God. He remembered what God revealed about himself. He remembered his own experience of being blessed by God, being protected by God in the past. When God made his covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, he described himself to Moses with these words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. The poet knew that, that aspect of God's character had not changed. That was true of God then. It was true of God at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. It is true of God today. It's very easy to forget the past and just focus on the future and be worried about that. But if we forget where we came from, if we forget how we were before we, we came to faith, then we forget how powerful God is to change lives and change situations. We forget how powerful he is to sustain us through tough times. That's why it's good to share our testimonies, not just for the benefit of others, but for our own benefit as well. Because we often forget the lessons that we've learnt along the way, how important it is to keep trusting and obeying God. The problem for the poet in verse 18 and 19 is that all he could remember was the bad stuff. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Anyone who's experienced some sort of trauma will find it hard to erase those images, that pain from their memory. That type of remembering requires no effort, and we wish we didn't remember. When we lie awake in the, the middle of the night and keep replaying it over and over. But remembering the poet talks about in verse 21 is a determined calling to mind that requires an, an effort of the will. It's the, the talking back to oneself when the poet says, my soul is downcast within me. It's the affirming to oneself, I do believe in God, even when everything is telling me not to. It's a retuning of one's whole being to be in tune with the Lord, to walk in step with the Spirit, which in turn changes his, his whole perspective. And now he can say, therefore, I have hope. As a result, what we now see is the poet talking to God, 
Up to this point, it was all about God doing this and that. And now he says to God, great is your faithfulness. You are a faithful God. Let me start to talk to God. Even if at first it is expressing our pain and our anger, it is acknowledging that God is there. He's not left us. He's grieving with us. But the crucial thing to finding hope here is the acknowledgement that God's compassions or his mercies are new every morning. That is why his love doesn't fail. I don't need to worry about how I will cope next month or next week or even tomorrow because God will give me what I need when I need it. That's why Jesus said, do not worry about tomorrow because God will provide for all our needs, physical, mental, spiritual. And what we need more than anything, if we are feeling downcast like the poet, is the strength to get through the day. Which brings us on to the next point. Hope comes from remembering the Lord's faithfulness and his unfailing love. And going forward, hope comes from trusting in God's mercy. Verse 21 says, I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. There's a conscious response to, to God's unfailing love here. The poet says to himself, the Lord is my portion. I believe it to be true, and I will live my life based on that. Therefore, I will wait for him. What does it mean, though, to say, the Lord is my portion? Well, for most Israelites, their portion was their allocation of land. That is where they could grow to feed their, their family. Um, it was their portion that was handed down to subsequent generations. When the land was apportioned to the different tribes of, of Israel, the Levites, from whom came the priests, were given no land because they were meant to depend on the offerings of the other tribes, the, the tithes, the first fruits, the free will offerings. And they were told that the Lord was their portion. The poet now is in a situation where he's not only got no land, he's got no temple, no king, no nation. He's got nothing, but he still has the Lord. And so he's able to say, like the psalmist in Psalm 73 says, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God will give me what I need when I need it. And his compassions or mercies are new every morning. God expects us to use the mercies he's given us for today and to trust that he will give us new mercies for tomorrow. Our problem is that we, we want the strength today so that we feel confident about tomorrow. And if we don't have that strength, we, we go to bed wondering whether we will be able to face tomorrow. We end up not sleeping because we're so anxious. It was the same mistake the Israelites made in the, the wilderness. God told them that uh, they would um, have manna tomorrow. They should collect sufficient for today. But some collected extra so they would feel more confident that they would have something for tomorrow. But of course, when tomorrow came, that was full of maggots. God had to teach them 
to trust in him. If we don't trust that God will provide us what we need tomorrow, then we run the risk of either becoming anxious or we become self-reliant because we've tried to take things into our own hands. And neither of those are good. Of course, this doesn't mean we, we shouldn't make plans. Uh, after all, the elders yesterday were starting to think about um, what it might look like if we were to meet again physically. But we don't rely on our planning to give us comfort and confidence. The Lord is my portion and I will wait for him. If I need to rip up my plans, that doesn't matter because the Lord has better plans. At the moment, many of our personal plans may be on hold. We could get anxious about that. Or we can trust that God will reveal more to us when we need to know it. What has changed for the poet? Well, his situation hasn't changed. He's still sitting in the rubble of a destroyed city. He's still lost everything. He's still in pain. But in the midst of a stormy sea, he has found peace in God. He's found that peace by reminding himself that God is actually not bad. He is a good God. And if he waits for him, then he will experience his goodness once more. Verse 25 says, The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. He knows that God's punishment of Jerusalem is just and, it, and it's not the end. God's covenant with Israel is broken at the moment, but it's not irreparable. Back in Deuteronomy, even before God's people entered the promised land, God made this promise from Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I've set before you come on you, and you take them to heart wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. The poet probably has no idea when that will happen or how it will happen. The destruction is fresh in his mind. That's all he can think about at the moment. But he's been reminded of God's promise and his faithfulness. And so all he needs to do is trust in him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Before, the silence for the poet was, was deafening. It was like a prison. He couldn't be heard. But now, it's wonderfully peaceful. We've said before that to lament is perfectly acceptable to God. It's okay to express our pain, to, to call out to God in frustration and anger, to do something about our situation. But where we need to get to 
is where the poet gets to a quiet humility of faith. Trust in God, even in the midst of suffering. And what is at the centre of his faith is those verses in the middle of this poem, which keep coming back to us in this series. We've looked at them already a couple of times. But look at verse 31 to 33 again. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. That he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. At this moment, God has cast off his people. As the poet surveys Jerusalem, he has brought grief to them. It is an act of judgment for their persistent sin and rebellion. But it's not forever. He will again show compassion because that is his nature. As we read at the end of the book of Micah, it says this, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnants of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. God would one day keep that promise. He would bring his people back from exile to their home. He would do that by raising up another nation who would overthrow the Babylonians and allow his people to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the city and its temple. He has the power to make that promise, to fulfill that promise, because he's a sovereign God who rules over the nations of the world. He's the one who appoints rulers. But although he was able to redeem his nation physically, how was he able to redeem them spiritually? How was he able to, to pardon their sin, to forgive their transgressions? How was he able to tread their sins underfoot? Surely if he's a just God, then justice needs to be done. We'll look back at the beginning of chapter 3, verse 1. I am the man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath. Does that remind you of another man who has seen affliction by the rod of the Lord's wrath? Someone else who was made to dwell in darkness, whose prayers were shut out when he called out for help, who became the laughing stock of the people, who was given gall to drink. The one who appeared before Pilate with a, a crown of thorns and was introduced to the people with the words, here is the man. The answer to how God was able to pardon the sins of his people was because Jesus took the punishment for them. In the same way that Jesus took the punishment for all our sins, past, present and future. Because his mercies never fail, because they are new every morning, they don't just give us the strength to, to cope with each day, those mercies are also sufficient for us to be forgiven each day and to know that forgiveness. 
we may be struggling with sin and temptation. And each time we, we feel we're making progress, we, we fall back into the pit. How will God forgive me again, we ask ourselves. Surely I've run out of all those get-me-out-of-jail-free cards. Well, the truth is that we, we all fail every day. Being a Christian doesn't mean we stop sinning. It means we have a new heart that doesn't want to sin, that, that hates sin just as God hates sin. One day, that victory over sin in our lives will be complete. But for now, in our earthly bodies, that struggle continues. But we have the great reassurance, and that is a reassurance that we leave here with, that because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you, you know what each one of us is feeling at this time. There will be some who are feeling downcast and overwhelmed by the current situation or by other things going on in their lives. There may be some feeling anxious about the uncertain future. There may be some struggling with temptation and specific sins. Lord, wherever we are at, we pray that you would help us to remember your faithfulness towards us, that your compassions never fail. They are new every morning. They provide what we need for that day. So Lord, help us not to, to worry about our weakness because your grace is sufficient for us and your power is made perfect in our weakness. In Jesus' name, amen.